0: Hi, friends, and welcome to the T21 Mom podcast. My name is Mary and I'll be your host. And usually uh, my good friend and co-host Ron joins me, but he has some pretty tight deadlines. And so he is not able to make it today, but I'm sure he'll, he'll be back for our next episode. And this week it's episode 84, and we are talking to Sarah Peralta of the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation, also known as the DSRF. And we're talking all about maladaptive behaviors, stimming, you know, a lot of things that can be, I guess, somewhat intrusive for our kids, and often difficult for us as parents to deal with. And she gives us some strategies and some suggestions around that. It's a great episode. So listen in. Today on the T21 Mom Podcast, I'm talking with Sarah Peralta from our favorite place, the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation, for short, the DSRF. Welcome, Sarah.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here today.
0: Oh, I'm so glad that you were able to come today. I know we had a little bit of scheduling difficulties, but we finally have been able to make it work. So which is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So we love the DSRF and we talk about it a lot on the show. But can you tell us a little bit about you and your role at the DSRF? For sure, yeah. So
1: I am a board-certified behavior analyst, um, and I am the person responsible for providing behavior support at the DSRF, which is a, a brand new department. Mm-hmm. Um, I started in February of 2022, just this mm-hmm. year. Um, so it's it, yeah, it's a brand new department. But I'm very excited to be here and to to provide support to individuals who often don't get that behavior support, right? I think that there's a lot of on speech support and, and OT support, um, but sometimes, right, there's so many misconceptions around Down syndrome and how, you know, sometimes children with Down syndrome don't engage in um, challenging behaviors or, you know, they're happy-go-lucky all the time and we don't need this type of stuff, right, <laughs> which that's not always the case. We all have bad days, uh, right, and, and we all engage in challenging behaviors mm-hmm. and, and it's a very big misconception that children with Down syndrome syndrome are always happy right Mm -hmm. that's not that's not the case for anyone Um, so yeah so I'm I'm very happy to to be able to provide support to to these families and I mean for for myself this this is where I started in the field of Mm -hmm. behavior support it was my my first job at the DSRF (laughs) so I'm I you know I just feel like it's it's a full circle I'm I'm happy to be back
0: yeah (laughs) wonderful well i think it's something that's very needed in our community and like you said like they our kids often don't get that support because also it's hard to find people who specialize in dealing with our kids like in down syndrome in particular and dealing with sometimes challenging behaviors that you're trying to work on so as you know ainsley has dual diagnosis of down syndrome and off and autism and i often hear in our little sub community how different our kids are to those with just down syndrome and i was hoping today that we can talk a little bit about some of the various and often challenging issues when dealing with autism in our kids with down syndrome right so ainsley was about five and a half when she got her official diagnosis and she's Nine, almost ten now, yes. and we waited for an entire year to get that diagnosis. And I think for those who are going he- like here in the Lower Mainland, I think it's longer if you're going through the public right. system, like two, yeah. maybe even three years, which is so yeah, terrible. A long wait. Yeah, and you know, early intervention is so key. And when your colleague Dr. Susan Fawcett was on uh, previously, she. Discuss that diagnosing autism in our kids is often challenging. And so like what age in our kids is, do kids typically get an autism diagnosis? Because I know in the typical population, it can be very young, like 18 months or two years, but it seems to be a little bit later in our kids with Down syndrome.
1: Right. Yeah. So typically uh, for children on the autism spectrum, they will receive a diagnosis as toddlers, like like you said, right? Sometimes even 18 months old, very, very young, um, sometimes before the age of two. So autism is a spectrum though. So this may be different for every single individual. For children with Down syndrome, an autism diagnosis will often come much later on because of something called diagnostic overshadowing. So this is when certain behaviors are attributed to a primary diagnosis without acknowledging other factors or other concerns. Right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, a parent may talk to their doctor about their child's behaviors, and the doctor may attribute those behaviors to Down syndrome, right? even though these behaviors may also be observed in children with autism. So uh, recently, the American Academy of Pediat- Pediatrics has provided new health um, healthcare guidelines for individuals with Down syndrome. I don't, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It is now being suggested that children with Down syndrome be assessed even, even earlier for, for autism, right? That we should um, look at it as, you know, this child could potentially have autism, Instead of saying, "Well, we will look, we will see. Let, let's let's okay. take a look at it in a few years, right?" So, um, yeah, it's definitely something that is not um, see, taken as uh, seriously, I think, mm-hmm. for parents, because um, you know, parents will bring their their challenges to the doctor, and then and it automatically gets um, attributed to this is Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. This is what Down syndrome is, right? Which is obviously. Challenging um, for for parents to not be heard. I think,
0: right? Exactly. So, yeah. So, yeah. what age, like roughly, do our kids tend to get diagnosed? I think that it happens much later on.
1: I, I would say probably after they start kindergarten. This is something that I'm still learning about. Mm-hmm. I I think that this is one of the things that I learned when I started working at the DSRF is that children with Down syndrome often don't get that dual diagnosis until after they have been through kindergarten at mm-hmm. least right it's very rare that that child will receive that diagnosis um and you know you were mentioning early intervention later on right those mm-hmm. er- those early years they're critical for teaching new new skills not even just to to the children but to the parents as, as well right in mm-hmm. navigating this this new world so um yeah it's it's unfortunate that it, it often happens that that diagnosis, that dual diagnosis will not come until probably after the the child has started um, school. Right. And by then we've, we've lost significant amount of time where we could have been providing early intervention as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. I have heard of cases where the kids were like 12, 13, 14, and even a little bit older, late teens before they were diagnosed and with ASD along with Down syndrome. And it's kind of heartbreaking almost because like there's so much that could have been done prior to help that child, you know, because I'm sure there was lots of challenging issues, you know, not just for the parents, but for the child themselves, like to have missed out on that critical time. Now, why, I mean, you kind of touched on it with the diagnostic overshadowing, but why do you think it's so challenging to diagnose our kids?
1: think I think it might be because those behaviors right those I think challenging behaviors let's say sometimes you know in in my world I I call them just behaviors right and and the word challenging sometimes um has a bad connotation so it just depends on what it is that we're talking about right um but sometimes with some of these behaviors because they they are Um, because of that diagnostic overshadowing, sometimes they are seen in kids only with Down syndrome and sometimes it's within both, right? So Mm I think that, um, honestly, I think that a lot of doctors are not that familiar (laughs) with um, attributing those behaviors to autism as well, right? Mm -hmm. So because there there may not be a lot of, um education around this topic it's just often associated to this is what down syndrome is Mm -hmm. and this is what down syndrome looks like right they're still developing these skills so this is what they're why they're doing these things Uh, i just i think that there there needs to be more research Mm -hmm. and more education um for all of us right because we just there there isn't enough enough support and enough um education on this topic Right, so I, I think that most pediatricians are not even aware of what a uh, a child with a dual diagnosis could could uh, could be experiencing. Right? Could be, mm-hmm. what kind of behaviors they they could be engaging in?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I I think you nailed it on the head. Is they're not that familiar with mm-hmm. a dual diagnosis in our kids, and and for many doctors and pediatricians they may only have one child in their practice with Down syndrome. So they're not even all that familiar, even with Down syndrome, and then you throw in autism, it just makes it that much more challenging. And I know from talking with Susan previously, it's upwards to approximately 18% of our kids. That's almost one in five, that could potentially have the dual diagnosis. And I found it very interesting that you said the American pediatrics, like, and correct me if I'm wrong, they're basically saying that all kids with Down syndrome should be screened for autism? I think
1: that's what, um, that's what the new idea is that we should be looking at it as, you know, this child could potentially have autism. Mm -hmm. And instead of saying, well, maybe let's figure it out later on, it should be Mm -hmm. more, uh, more like, um, let's look at it as, okay, they could have autism. So let's look at it now. Yeah. right to see so that we can rule that out mm-hmm. um and much earlier on
0: yes i i yeah. agree i think that's fantastic that they're putting that into um in out there for the medical pro- professionals because like you said it often gets di- dismissed and then yeah. you know if the early intervention isn't done like sometimes these behaviors just become so challenging and then that's when they get assess. So yeah, sure. I I'm really glad to hear that I did not know that. So that's really fantastic. Now, mm-hmm. I'm in a, like, a lot of different downstream forums. And something I, re- I read about a lot are about our kids who have the dual diagnosis who have the maladaptive behaviors such as being distru- disruptive, destructive and aggressive behaviors. I mean, I have read numerous times that people have had to replace their TVs on multiple occasions as their child keeps throwing things at it. So how do parents best understand these behaviors and how do we support our children? But I also think the biggest question is, how do we stop or prevent these behaviors I know that's yeah. a lot of questions there <laughs>
1: <laughs> no I like this topic I you know behavior is my stuff and and, and I think that um, this is an, an area of course where um you know there are big misconceptions, like we said earlier, right? That um, I I feel like often when I when I go to schools I hear either these two things. Uh, so it's either you know the child is happy, they don't engage in problem behavior, right? So there's that, or the child is lazy or stubborn, right? And it's often. Um, it's 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 a negative way of presenting an individual right um we all engage in behaviors that are problematic we all do um some of our behaviors are just more obvious than than others right so I think that one of the ways that I look at behavior um is that behavior can be um behavior serves a function, right? So there there are reasons why we engage in in behavior. So sometimes it might be because we want things, right? Mm -hmm. It might be because we're trying to um, escape those aversive things in our environment, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It might be because um, we want attention, that social attention from Mm -hmm. other people as well, right? Which as humans, this is who we are. We all crave those types of things. And sometimes we engage in behaviors because they just feel good. They feel good to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we all do these things. And I think that the way that I, I, you know, the way that I look at behavior is, okay, what, what is the function of this behavior? What is it that you're trying to communicate? Right. Are you throwing that, that TV remote? Is it because you want mom's attention or because did it get so loud that, you know, maybe you thought if I throw this mm-hmm. at the TV, it will stop. Mm -hmm. Or I love the response that I get from my parents when I do this thing, right? Or maybe I just like throwing things. It's just fun. It feels good to throw things, right? So I look at behavior as, you know, the the things that serve a function, right? Um, And of course, other things, you know, are okay to do. And other ones are a little bit more challenging, right? self injurious behavior Mm -hmm. is definitely something that, um, we we have to, we have to address and we have to take care of, uh, right? Aggression towards other, other people, property destruction, these are not, um, you know, things that we can ignore, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that I look at things when it comes to supporting parents is, you know, we look at things that, um, like picking your battles, right? Is there something that, that is, is interfering with the person's um learning right is this interfering with your learning with interactions with other people in the environment is this causing harm to you or to others right because if it is then we definitely have to teach you other ways of of interacting other ways of um of um you know interacting with the environment or with other people but if it's something that you know maybe it's just a little annoying to other people then i often think okay who needs to change here? Is it my perspective or your perspective, mm, right? Because okay. it's not—it's not about. So for example, something that um, I, I work with with one family who a child loves to throw things, right? Um, and and so. We thought of ways of, of addressing this, right? And it's like, yeah, definitely we can't throw heavy things because other things are going to break. So could we throw socks into a laundry basket and make that a game and make it super fun, right? And still serving that same function. Of, mm-hmm. oh, it feels good to do this, right? So it's about teaching those replacement skills and teaching about there's a time and a place for us to do this, right? Um, I love I love dancing. I love, you know, moving around, right? should I do that in the middle of a presentation? Probably not. But is that appropriate to do at a dance class? Absolutely. Right. So it, it's about teaching those um, replacement behaviors and teaching a, t- a time and a place for certain things. And then looking at the function of that behavior as well. Right. And behavior is so complex behavior. Mm-hmm. Isn't, you know, one way all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. It changes just like our preferences do our motivation to do things. Right. Um, we just have to remember that for, for, kids with Down syndrome with a dual diagnosis, they're still developing some of these communication skills. And it must be very challenging to say, oh, that was too loud. That's why I did that. Right. Or oh, I got scared. I didn't know what to do. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we have the ability to communicate that. And it's it's a socially accepted way of communicating. Right. And so there are just so many things to touch on, but, um, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, that's the way that I look at behavior, right? But it is it? It's not that, you know, behavior is good or bad. It's, it's, it's serving a function. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, and, and if, if it's interfering with your safety, right. Mm-hmm. With your learning and with your um, ability to interact with others, then yeah, we have to look at it in a way where it's, What else can we do to to support you in the best way possible so that you are safe and that, you know, you you Mm -hmm. have the best support that you could have?
0: Yeah, Yeah, like I know when you're talking about the throwing the socks into the basket or, you know, I never thought about that, that maybe I mean, maybe the child just likes to throw things at the TV, (laughs) you know, maybe it could be a Nerf ball or something, but yeah, I never thought about that, that maybe it was too loud and they don't, they can't necessarily tell us that, that it, it, or, or that there's just even just too much noise in the room, not necessarily even from the TV, Yeah. but I hadn't thought of that. So yeah. And I, I, and I know from like being as part of Su- Susan's group about the, about the function of the behavior, like what's the reason mm-hmm. for the behavior. There's always a reason. And I, you know, and I know a lot of it is, A lot of people often say that behavior is like a form of communication, you know, like they can't tell you that it's too loud. And often our kids with the dual diagnosis, they're they're non-speaking or communication is more challenging than if they just had Down syndrome. So how would what would you suggest how we deal with that when you know maybe they're non-speaking and communication is a challenge like Ainsley can talk and she does have like a talker and we use PECs a lot like I know she uses PECs a lot at school but like what do you suggest
1: yeah so I think that I mean in in my world I usually do um an assessment to figure out right what does what does this behavior look like and um <clears throat> what how can we what are some of the strategies that we can come up with to best support you right okay so so yeah looking at, at not just at the behavior but what are what's everything going on what's going on in the environment and what are some of those strategies that we can think of right so sometimes we look at environmental strategies right mm-hmm. okay so we know that after school we're exhausted everyone is tired and maybe you know asking you to do too many things right after school may not be the best time because that's when we see those challenging behaviors okay there's that hmm maybe you know the way that I provide instructions to you maybe I'm doing in a way that it's not your preferred way right so maybe I have to change about you know how how do I present things right maybe I do have to teach you new 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 skills new replacement skills right like no we we can't do this but guess what we can do this instead Mm -hmm. right um and then consequence strategies as well, right? So it's looking at what happens after appropriate behavior or desired behavior does occur, right? I think that I don't know if you if you remember this from from Susan's group, but sometimes as parents, I mean all parents do this. Sometimes we focus on the negative and not Mm -hmm. always on the positive things Mm -hmm. that are happening, right? Every parent does this, right? So sometimes providing that reinforcement, that praise for the things that are going well, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that that can be strengthened in the future later on. Um, And having having, or attempting to have a a positive child-led relationship at times, right? Sometimes we can do things your way um, absolutely. And sometimes we have to do things mom's way, right? Mm-hmm. I have to keep you safe. I have to make sure that you're okay. Um, but all of this stuff is so tricky and, and it's not something that just happens, you know, like this, mm-hmm. right? It takes time. It takes mm-hmm. practice, consistency. Um, and, and like I said, behavior is so complex. Even that the function of a behavior, a behavior may serve a certain function in one setting and it may be different in, a, in another mm-hmm. setting, right? And in different people, (laughs) may bring out different behaviors in a person so um that's yeah that's the way that I would look at it when when you know looking at behavior overall and and, Mm -hmm. um teaching those those new new ways of communicating right it's looking Mm -hmm. at the whole environment rather than just the the behavior right because yeah behavior is so complex that way
0: yeah and I think oftentimes we get stuck on the actual behavior itself instead of looking like, like you said, at the whole environment. And like, you know, as I was, as I've said previously, I was part of Susan's, you know, her PhD study group. And one of the behaviors we worked on with Ainsley was every time we walked into a store, in particular, the grocery store, she would immediately do the drop and flop, like one step in, boom, she'd be down. And then, I didn't realize what the reason was for that. I thought, why won't she just like, she's walking, like just continue walking. Like how hard is it? But, you know, through Susan, I learned, you know, I had to, you know, give her lots of warning and give her lots of praise as we're getting into the store and like tell her we're only getting five items. Like there was a number of different things. And, you know, once I started working on that, it, changed dramatically like Mm -hmm. I you know when I was even skeptical that it was gonna (laughs) work right yeah yeah. I've told Susan that right but I it did so you know and I was really thankful for that because and we all know about the dreaded drop and flop like when it occurs they become like a limp noodle it's almost impossible to pick them up and you know and Ainsley she's a bigger girl like she's at 90 pounds now so I mean thankfully it doesn't happen very often so anymore so thank goodness (laughs) Yeah, but and I totally understand, and I feel for parents for the the different challenges that they have with various behaviors, whatever they may be. But like you said, yeah. it, behavior is complex. Yeah. Now, one thing that I I'm really curious about is like you know, can we talk about stimming? Because right. you know, and I didn't really realize what stimming or the word stim meant i kept seeing this word i'm going what does that mean Uh, until obviously i got involved in the autism world and in my opinion i feel that most people and you kind of touched on it earlier that we all do some sort of stimming like we play with a pen or you know we we bounce our knee up and down or maybe we like to play with like fidget spinners or or whatever but often with our kids with the dual diagnosis it can be quite All consuming. You know, one mom wrote that her son listens to music and walks in a circle for seven hours or more a day. Can you explain, like, what stimming is and why our kids do it? Sure. Yeah. This is a very interesting topic. Um, So,
1: stimming is usually behaviors that help a person self regulate or might help them feel calm right? So in my world, I call this self-stimulatory behavior, right? It's things that make us feel good. Mm -hmm. Um, and we all do, we all do these things, like you said. So for example, when I'm nervous, I might go for a run or I might, um, you know, I know that when I'm presenting, I might have a hair tie on my wrist and I just play with that. Right. And, um, and, for kids on the spectrum, it might just be, it look a little bit different, right? It might be loud vocalizations, rocking back and forth, jumping, repetitive movements with items, right? Maybe flicking a pen back and forth. And the thing is that, um, we it's important to note that what might look like self stimulatory behavior sometimes might serve a, a another function as well right so it always goes back to those functions of behavior it might feel good for sure and it might look that way um but it's not always self-regulation um, as well Be, uh, sometimes an individual may engage in these behaviors because there's too much going on in the environment and they're trying to like we said right escape that or maybe they want that social response from other people or maybe they're trying to communicate I really want that thing that you have, so I'm going to do this other thing, yeah. right? Uh, or sometimes it's a combination of all of these things, right? So sometimes self, um, that, that those stimming types of behaviors, they don't always serve that function of automatic reinforcement. It feels good. Sometimes it is because of other functions as well. But I do think that one thing to to that we should all be mindful of is that we all do it, right? We all mm. do things that help us feel better, and I think that sometimes um, trying to eliminate some of these behaviors, right, may cause may cause more harm than 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 good, right? So sometimes, as a behavior um, analyst, I often think about, you know, yes, okay, why is this person engaging in these behaviors? But okay, is it interfering with? Mm with your learning and all of that stuff, right? And if it's not, do we have to touch it? Do we have to go there, right? Mm-hmm. Do we have to remove this thing that helps you, right? Um, it's, we all have our little quirks and we all do certain things, just our, some of our behaviors are just more socially acceptable, right? And I think that, um, I, you know, part of the work that I do is taking into consideration your diversity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think that we, um, Uh, we often look at behavior as good or bad, appropriate, not appropriate. And, and, it's it's not that way for mm-hmm. for you know kids with Down syndrome and autism, right? It it's sometimes a behavior. Um, p- people engage in behaviors for a specific reason, and it might be because it, it feels good. And and who are we to say, hey, you need to stop mm-hmm. rocking back and forth, right? Um, is it appropriate to do it in the middle of the street? Absolutely not. Your safety is at risk, right? Is it okay to do it in your room when you're having calm down time, uh, right? It's it's about choosing those, those, um, those, those bad, I wouldn't even call it a battle. In yeah, that case just cho- choosing, you know, what, what is it worth it? Is, it, is yeah. it worth taking away that thing that feels good for you? Is it interfering with anything in your life? Is it preventing you from having, you know, the best life that you could have? And if that is the case, then we do look at, okay, what are some of what are some other behaviors that we could teach, you, right? So maybe mm-hmm. um, I think what was the son doing? Um, singing, he walks in <laughs>
0: singing, circles like seven hours a, a day and right. listens to music. Yeah,
1: right. So something like that, right? I mean, I and of course I can't really comment on that specific thing, but right. just as an example, um, right? Is it would it be the worst thing for a person to do this for short periods of time? No, but is it interfering with your you know, ability to to go to school or to hang out with your family? Or is your family able to go and do things? Uh, right? We have to look at, at everything that's that's going on, which is tricky, right? It's, it's not, it's not always so simple. Um, mm. But but yeah, that's the way that I would look at, at these types of behaviors okay the stimming behaviors yeah yeah
0: and I mean I understand the need uh, for our kids to stim and I mean Ainsley has a lot of mouth sensory like she lo- loves to like lately has been chewing on a sock or I had one of these rubber exercise bands and she's like <laughs> flapping that against her face like I don't know like how that feels good but regardless you know yeah. and you know and then we have one of those little um popper thingies and she seems to like that but she likes to tap against her face and she's always been like that and you know and really in the grand scheme of things it's not that big of a deal and for the most part doesn't interfere like when we get out of the car she just hands it to me and so she's okay with that but like for other kids or you know like for example the the woman whose son walks in a circle for seven hours a day like is there a way to redirect Reduce or even replace a stem.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, so so here's the thing, right? Again, I I would look into is is this interfering? I I I think that's my 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 starting point always, right? Mm-hmm. Is this interfering with? with your learning and interactions and all of that right and if it is or if it's let's say it's causing some harm right maybe we are mouthing things too much and now it's getting really red and we're scared that you know it it might become infected or something like Mm -hmm. that right so absolutely we can look at I love I love brainstorming ideas with families so all the things that we could potentially do to sort of Teach a new skill or replace that, that, you know, that behavior that still serves that same function. Right. So maybe, maybe it just feels good to chew on those things. It's just, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the best, the best thing is the best way for me to feel calm or I feel happy when I do this. Right. But maybe I can use something else. Mm -hmm. that won't won't you know make me break out or something or you know cause an infection or something right so it's still serving that same function Mm -hmm. we're just doing it in a way that we're keeping you safe as well right we're keeping everyone safe um so so yeah that's the way that I would look at it I I often um I think that I would encourage all families to whenever working on or thinking of replacement skills is to brainstorm with, you know, with your professional or with everyone, you know, uh, that that knows the child and including the child at times as well. Right. If they have the ability to communicate why they like these things or, um, you know, I prefer doing that over that. Right. Including the, the, the child as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Doing what I would call something called a preference assessment. Do you prefer to d- use this one, this one, or this one? Right. And, okay. and these ones are okay to use because they won't, you know, they won't uh, hurt you so much or something like that. Right. But um, th- the way that I look at replacement behavior is sure, let's take that behavior or that item, um, but let's make sure that it still serves that same function for you, right? So that we're not taking away that thing that helps you feel good, right? None of us would like that. If somebody Mm -hmm. said to me, Sarah, you can't do that anymore, right, you you know, you, you shouldn't do that, right, and if it's not harming anyone, that's the thing, right, if it's not harming me or other, right, if somebody said to me, you can't do that anymore, I too would probably engage in challenging behavior, Mm -hmm. I'd probably get mad and annoyed at people, right, um, and I feel like that's something that I I try to keep in mind always when replacing Mm -hmm. behaviors, right, um, Yeah,
0: yeah. Like I keep going back to thinking about the lady and her poor floor, like of him walking in circles for seven hours. But I, yes, I totally get what you're saying. Is what does he get out of that? And like maybe it's going for a long walk. I, I don't know, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Situation. Yeah. But yeah, because I think she could really benefit from speaking to like a professional like you. That there must be something that can replace that behavior because for that length of time each day it obviously interferes with his right. life and learning and, and engaging with others. And I think it would be so trying uh, for the parents and the other people in the family, like dealing with that behavior. Like it's not bad, like it's not destructive, but it's not, I don't personally think it's like a good behavior either because it's like for such a length of time, you know, I, right. I I feel that would be really difficult, but yes, you're right. Always going back to the function. Like I have to remember that, like what's, what are they getting out of that? So yeah, good to, good to note. Now I know our kids really thrive on routine. Like well before I knew Ainsley had autism, I was always very good about keeping pretty much the same routine. But I know often with our kids with the dual diagnosis, this routine can become very rigid and schedule oriented. Things need to be in the same place. Like for example, one woman said it came right down to where the furniture was. Like that she one day I think moved a chair or changed it up a little bit and her her daughter like had a like a total meltdown, like was freaking out I think was the word she used. And And another mom said, her child got really upset when she took a different route to school, thinking her child wouldn't even notice. So what do you, what advice do you give to parents for dealing with this? Because it, like sometimes you just can't adhere to the routine, things right. happen or, or what. Like, so what do parents do?
1: Yeah. Um, so and I think that this is so common and it's definitely tricky, right? Cause mm-hmm. it's those unexpected changes in the environment that you can't plan for. I think that sometimes, um, parents are really good at planning for things right for the week this is what we're going to do and this is what it's going to look like and then there's a change in the routine and and you know child doesn't like that and suddenly you don't know what to do about that right which how how would you have prepared for that unexpected Mm -hmm. event right it 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 just happened um so what i would like to start by saying that yeah this is definitely tricky and this is definitely something that we we see often right and in 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 the autism world, right? There's a there. We have um, there is some rigidity, and there is some um, challenges with fle- being flexible, right? So I think that one of the things that I do in the beginning um, for for teaching. Uh, families and teaching children to to be a little bit more flexible is to uh, sometimes for parents to 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 give in and provide that that you know that um, assurance of oh I hear you this is hard for you right like validating those Mm -hmm. feelings I can see that oh yeah there was a change today and we had to do something completely different right Um, and then honoring that request for something else, right? Sometimes we do have to do that. And that's okay. It's okay to to be flexible for us too, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's I think that we focus a lot. um, I think all parents do this on you have to do things my way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And sometimes we have to remember that, you know. Sometimes it's okay to do things the other the, the other person's way, right? So sometimes we can do that, but it's also important for children to learn. Sometimes we don't have the option of doing that. Sometimes we do have to do things a certain way, right? And so there 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 are ways of teaching these things. Um, but I, I think that, again, looking at why we're, we have a difficult time with that, right? What is it about um, changing this that makes you um, act this certain way, right? So it's not just that this is what we do and this is how it works for every child, right? This is going to vary for, for every, every kid. But I think that just, you know, as a, a general recommendation is that sometimes it is okay to, to give in. Right, mm-hmm. and sometimes if there's safety involved, then no, there. <clears throat> sorry, there's no option, right? Right, you cannot do that. Um, yeah. So, but I, I would also say gradually introducing disappointment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, like uh, teaching. Oh, yeah. Let's practice this. Um, how would we, you know, respond to this um, if this happened? Right. Um, Sometimes practicing specific things during times when parents are regulated Mm -hmm. is also really important, right? Because I I know how I am, right? After a long day of work and, you know, if my child is asking for stuff and my patient's bucket is empty, I'm most likely not going to be able to be Mm -hmm. the best Coolest, calm down, mom. In that moment, right. So I, I also think about, okay, what else can can I do to um to help the situation. Mm-hmm. And so practicing skills during times when everyone is regulated um, can be can be the most effective, right? If we try to practice things when we're all of us are not feeling the best, then it's going to be more challenging for
0: anyone to be able to communicate in the best way that they could. Yes, that's excellent advice. I hadn't really ever thought of it that way, you know, that we as the parent also have to be in a good space, like, to then expect these things for our our children. So yeah, that makes total sense. And I remember, like several times, uh, Susan said, it's, it's not rocket science. But like, because I, I remember thinking going, yeah, like, it just makes so much common sense, but we often don't think that you know don't even think that we just think we have to do it this way and you know and like you said, we've had a long day or feeling rushed or yeah that's not going to help the situation like right. we have to be in the proper mindset to to help our kids at this point too. and I mean I know you are not a medical doctor, but are there like are you aware of like are there different medications that can help our kids with some of these challenging behaviors? I think yeah like you said right I my
1: my area of expertise is behavior um, behavior support so I think that when it comes to medications so just discussing all of this um I think that you know I always encourage parents talk to your doctor because they will have the most up-to-date mm-hmm. information and all of the things that they um that that would be that would be best I think that there you know if if there are sudden changes in in behaviors um and you know Maybe you're saying, "Hey, this wasn't happening this week," but I don't know where this this has you know, intensified. And, you know, it's, there's just a lot going on. I think that definitely talking to doctors uh, about the sudden change in, in routines is important so that they can rule out any medical concerns, mm, right? Okay. That's always, that's always the first step. Um, and because and, it might be, oh, maybe there's an ear infection. Maybe mm. the, the reason why they're throwing things at you is because they're trying to communicate that. I'm in pain right mm-hmm. and so always always kind of think with um with a, 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 a medical professional it's it's always the first step to rule out any other stuff yeah. um yeah
0: okay no yeah that's yeah. that's a valid point for sure now Ainsley's only nine and I know puberty is on the horizon but if our kids are already having some of these difficult or challenging behaviors, will puberty heighten them even more? I think that this,
1: this, again, this would be different for each individual. I think Mm -hmm. puberty and adolescence is just difficult for everyone. Right. I mean, I think pack, you know, me being a teenager and just different changes and so much going on. So we already know that it's going to be tricky for, for every person. I think that what's important to, to remember is that sometimes there are changes going on. And if a person is still learning how to communicate, it's still developing, you know, these. Um, these communication skills they may be able to th- sorry they would engage in certain behaviors right that um that that may be may be seen as as challenging for other people and it might mm-hmm. just be their way of saying oh I don't know what's going on with my body or I there's something right something feels different I don't I don't know what, how to deal with this but I think that just keeping that in mind that purity is challenging mm-hmm. for everyone already yeah. right it's it's we know we know that it's challenging and so if you don't have the ability to communicate or are still developing those communication skills it's going to be a little bit more challenging for you right mm-hmm. but this looks different for every every individual um so yeah but just keeping in mind that puberty is hard period <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah i know <laughs> yeah and
1: uh, I was also gonna say as mm-hmm. well right that there there are people who um, depending on what what it is that are you know those challenges um, so for example at the DSRF we have um, a se- sexual health educator right mm-hmm. so look for individuals who have um, who have experience in, in that area right providing support during that specific time of, of a person's life right they would be able to help you navigate with, puberty and all of that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So,
0: so yeah, that's just one recommendation that I would give. Yes. And that's Andrea, Lee, Andrea Lee. Yeah, so. Andrea, <laughs> she's, she's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did do an episode on puberty with her. A oh, while great, back. great. Yeah. yeah, great. So what do you feel are parents best strategies for dealing with maladaptive behaviors? I know you kind of touched on it before, like, again, like looking what's the function of the behavior. But I mean, if you can just give it like a little snapshot yeah. or mm-hmm. like what do you think would be the best thing for parents to do?
1: Yeah. Okay. So I, I, um, I have, I have two things, two things okay. that I suggest to parents, um, just general things that may help. Right. So one of the things that I always suggest is mental care, mental health care for mm-hmm. moms and dads. Right. So we we can't help, our little ones, if we are having a time or it's more difficult to help, you know, our family, if we're having a hard time. So, um, you know, make sure that moms and dads, you're taking care of yourselves too, right? Make sure that mm. you're taking the time to eat a warm meal, <laughs> and, <laughs> right? And do your favorite hobby, um, ask for help when needed, right? So that's the one thing that I always make sure that we look for it's it's your mental health um being taken care of too right um so there's that and then another thing that i would suggest to to any family is to create an environment where there are opportunities for fun Right. So it doesn't always have to be, we need to teach you this, and you need to go to this class and that class and this class. And then you have to do that. Right. And we have to work on those goals that Sarah said that we need to do it and, yeah. and our and that's our SLP and our OT. <clears throat> Creating opportunities where, you know, even if it's just five minutes of child-led Fun, right? You Mm -hmm. love throwing socks up and down? Let's do that. I'll join in the fun. I will stim with you too. And look, we're both having fun and I'm interacting with you. And you can tell that I'm here and I'm present, right? Um, So interact with your child in a child led way without any demands, just fun for five minutes. That's the, the number one thing that I always recommend to all the families I work with. Have because I think that sometimes we forget to to do that because um, we're so busy with so many other things and we have so many goals of you know all the things that we need to do but um, scheduling fun is it's also good for
0: that parent-child relationship mm-hmm. yeah 100% because I know uh, yeah I hadn't really thought of it that way and because I know it's like some days it's just it's just so hard
1: yeah. and
0: And then Ainsley just does something silly and I kind of go along with it and we're both laughing and, you know, and it may only be for five or 10 minutes, but it does give you that sort of almost like a reset, you know, that, yes, I can, you know, I can keep powering on and I can do this. And, and also just to let our kids be kids, you know, and it's, it's hard, you know, especially when dealing with the dual diagnosis and, and like, and I've, as I've said previously, like Ainsley doesn't really have a lot of, uh of of maladaptive behaviors i mean we have some issues but like i've read some stories where it's just so challenging you know with their child like they can't go anywhere the child won't get in the car or won't leave the house or like lots of really difficult behaviors to deal with and and you know and i don't know if these parents have like you or susan on their team and you know but but I find that that's what parents do need is they need someone who can like you guys who know and understand like, uh, like how to deal with these behaviors in our, in our kids, because it's difficult for everyone. It's difficult for the child. It's difficult for the parents. It's difficult for the other people in the family. Now, I know you, you kind of already touched on it about like taking care of ourselves and our mental health and just having fun with our kids. Cause you know, and I know a lot of parents who have kids with, a special need of whatever but also now dealing with the child with Down syndrome and autism the dual diagnosis it's like so isolating at times and you know like I know for example like Susan started uh the parents up and downs group not for parents with the dual who had a child with a dual diagnosis but I think almost half of us in that group have a child with the dual diagnosis but Do do you have, I mean, you kind of already talked about it, but like, do you have any suggestions on how parents can maybe connect with other parents or, you know, just to kind of get out of that feeling of isolation? Because it's, I think for a lot of us, that is often the hardest thing is you feel like you're just so alone and there's no one else gets us. And, you know, it's hard going to these Down syndrome functions when our kid is not like the other kids.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. That's a really good, um, that's a really good point. One of the things that I sometimes encourage parents to do is I'm not sure if you're aware of this, um, the Autism Support Network, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they do have specific groups of of parents, right? So it might be something like Punjabi-speaking parents right might meet during a certain time um, you know if if there isn't a group for that dual diagnosis of down syndrome and autism maybe that could be created maybe that could be another you know a chapter that meets somewhere in the community um and and they i think that they meet Um, from time to time somewhere Mm -hmm. out there. So that's something that I would do right to reach out to to the the other (laughs) the other side, the autism side, right to see Mm -hmm. if there's anything else that um, that 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 they can provide. Um, and, And yeah, yeah, that's what I would suggest.
0: Yeah, there is a group and off the top of my head, I can't think of what it is that they I think they meet monthly. That so dual diagnosis group. It's back east, so I can't always get on because of the time difference. Right. But, um, and you know, and it's great to hear from a lot of the parents there. Their kids are older, so it's you know they're leading the charge for me. So I, I learned so much from the parents who are ahead in this journey. And and yes, and I encourage people out there. You know, because no one wants to feel isolated in this journey, yes. and it's at times can be really hard. But everyone knows how to Zoom now. Thanks to COVID, you know, (laughs) and it's, and you can meet people from all over the world, you know, but it just sometimes takes someone to start that, you know, to, to have that gumption to just get up and, and, and do it, which sometimes can be the hardest step, but for sure, I I think at times. So like, we need that. We need people who understand our kids who are walking that same path as we are Mm -hmm. and where we can, you know, just, share our stories and 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 share our experiences with each other so yeah, yeah I think that's great like a great advice I hadn't even thought of that just reach out to the autism community directly because I know that they're all very connected and and it's yeah. a big community like wherever sure. you are it's a big community especially here in BC so
1: yeah
0: absolutely well Sarah I really want to thank you for coming on today and like i said it was we had some ske- scheduling challenges <laughs> yeah. But i'm glad we were finally able to make it work but i'm so appreciative of your time and your knowledge and and you talking about a lot of the challenges and issues that we often have with our kids with like you know some different behaviors and especially in our kids with the dual diagnosis
1: and thank you so much for having me mary it was, it was a pleasure to be here
0: Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening to the T21 Mom podcast. And as always, I would love to hear from you. Uh, You can find me on uh, Facebook. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at Trisomy21Mama or drop me a line at info at T21Mom.com. It would also really mean a lot if you left us a little uh, review on Apple Podcasts and we'll give you a little shout out and you can also give us i think it's a a rating on spotify so that would mean a lot if you would do that so we could be a little bit more searchable to others in the down syndrome community and next week we are talking with dr john santoro and we'll be talking all about regression syndrome in our kids so not next week but in two weeks time Thanks for listening to the T21 Mom podcast and keep on loving on your rocking kiddos and we'll see you next time.